Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to tell you a story that has nothing to do with this passage. There was a pastor new to a church, and all the congregation started inviting him to their house, and he came every evening on different weeks and visited with all the members of the congregation. And he would visit every night uh, or every, every meal time that they invited him over, and he would do a different house, and his plan was to be able to go every year and sit down with a family from his congregation. So he sat down with this one family. They prepared, prepared an elaborate meal with their best china, their best spoons, their best forks, not like at my house where we use plastic and paper, and they put their nicest stuff out. And he, um, he had a great dinner with them. They all had a good time. And then as they were cleaning up, they noticed a spoon was missing. Where was the spoon? And the wife started thinking, I bet that pastor stole our spoon. And, he, and she thought about this all year. She didn't confront him. She didn't bring it up to him. She just stewed on it and became a little embittered about it. So next year comes around and... They invite him back over, and she's like, I'm going to find out what happened to my spoon. And so he sits down, and, and they're all at the table, and she goes like this, I have to know. Before we go any further, did you take our spoon? And the pastor looks at her and says, no, I left it in your Bible. All that to say, if you haven't noticed, your bulletin is upside down. That's what I wanted to point out. So maybe you haven't looked at your bulletin if you don't know it's upside down. So Philippians chapter 1, we have a wonderful passage with our brother Paul here. Last week we talked about how he called himself a slave. Him and Timothy were slaves of Christ Jesus. They were uh, slaves and they wrote this letter to the saints in Christ Jesus. And we saw that saints are just ordinary Christians. There's no difference between a saint and a Christian. They should be the same. They should be one and the same. And we had a quick, brief um, overview of overseers and deacons, and then jumped into grace and grace to you and peace. I want to um, talk about Bible reading in general for just a second. When we look at our scriptures, we can recognize that this is essentially medicine for our souls, for our hearts. As we look at this passage, I want you to help me figure out what type of medicine is this passage. Okay, so some medicine you take on a regular reoccurring basis, don't you? That would be things like, um, kind of like our vitamins, but think about if you have a, um, like diabetes, you have to take regular doses of insulin on a regular basis. Or perhaps it's like a medicine that you have a headache and you take it one time and it alleviates that headache and then you move on. Now we know that all scripture should be read, all scripture is God-breathed and useful, but sometimes a particular passage stands out um, for a particular purpose. So let's think about it as we read this passage, starting in verse 3. We're going to be going through 3 through 11 today. And this is a rich passage, so we will do our best to do it justice. It says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless on or in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, as this passage sparks in me some serious conviction, as well as some, 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 some serious joy, I pray that this would also spark in this congregation a new and refreshed heart for you. Not only would it give them comfort in the passages that we see here, but also to give them a, a shoring up of their faith, a strengthening and some guidance as to how to uh, go forward this week. Father, we, we thank you for your word that we know that no aspect of it will return void, that it will, it will accomplish the mission that you have for it. Lord, I pray that I remain behind your cross and that the only thing that this congregation notices is the power of you and your word. God, we thank you for Christ and we thank you that we were able to celebrate the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together without fear of imprisonment or death. God, other countries cannot say the same. Father, we pray for the Smiths as the husband goes to Uganda today or soon to um, deal with some things that need to get done. Father, we pray that your glory will be magnified there as well. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. So can you tell me what type of medicine that passage should be? I'm not going to tell you. We're going to wait till the end. So think about it as we continue. Now, I wanted to just take a very brief moment to talk about verse 1, because I didn't have a chance last week because it was a very short and fast sermon, wasn't it? So it mentions overseers in the plural. Overseers are also called bishops in some translations. When we see scripture, we see that overseers, elders, and pastors are typically synonymous. In fact, we see that when these are being referred to, they have the same general job descriptions and tasks. So when you see this, I also want you to consider who and how this is being written. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and the people in Philippi have one church. There's not a plurality of churches. So when he says to the overseers, he is considering plurality of overseers in that church. And I just want to emphasize that because this will come into play later for those of you who are elders in this congregation and those of you who are pastors um, in this congregation. So let's go ahead and continue. I've titled this, this sermon, let me see what I titled it, The Heart of God's Slave. Now remember we talked about this word servant or bondservant, how really the, the Greek word is more for slave and it's really important that we keep that even though when we think of slavery, us Americans, we're reminded of the South and the slavery in the South and the dangers and the, the horrific nature of that institution. This is a different type of slavery, a slavery that you could sell yourself into 
in order to raise your position up. And we want to make sure that we pay attention to that. And so this is a slave's thanksgiving is what we're going to see here. And then we have a slave's prayer. So this is about a thankful pastor. Remember this letter was written by Paul to the Philippians because they gave some money to him while he was in prison in Rome. And remember, prison is not such a nice place back in those days. And so the, these people in Philippi, they've gathered together an offering and maybe had to make some sacrifices and send some money to this church planter, this pastor Paul, who is in prison about to be executed in Rome. Think about that next time you tithe. How many of you have ever thought, well, this money is just going to go to waste? I'm just going to send some money to Paul and he's going to die before this money gets there. What's the good of that? But Paul has received this money and he writes them and he talks to them. And he says, I am joyful in my remembrance of you. Look at verse 3. It says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. What makes a pastor thankful? What makes this Paul thankful? Now imagine getting this letter. Imagine if you had received this letter from your pastor Paul who's in prison. And he says that he has joy when he thinks about you. How many of you would be like, well, he may not have joy about me, but he may have joy when he thinks about this person over here. Or maybe he has joy about me, but I, don't, I really doubt that when he thinks about that difficult person, he doesn't have joy. How many of you would think that? Paul says, all of you. When you read these passages, you're gonna, or when you read these verses, you're going to see all, every, multiple times. And if you are someone who likes to highlight in your Bible, that would be a fun thing for you to do is go through and see everywhere that he uses this type of language, this all, every, and um, those are the main ones you want to highlight. But you'll see that it's, it's a reoccurring theme. And so Paul has joy when he thinks about him. And he explains to us why in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is he talking about there? What is this partnership in the gospel? Is he just happy that he got some money? So he's writing like, I'm real thankful for you guys for giving me that money so I could afford to have some food today in prison. Or is he writing because he actually means it? The word that he uses for this partnership is koinonia which means fellowship, this fellowship around a common thing. He says, we are in fellowship around something, one thing, the gospel. What is the gospel? Why should we fellowship around the gospel? Now, we can take lots of application from this. For example, when we think about marriage, I've been talked to by some who have come to me and said, well, I don't understand why I have to marry a believer. I don't know why I have to date a believer. Now, what I don't want you to hear me say is that if you are married to an unbeliever, whether you had lapsed as a Christian and then later married one, or perhaps um, you weren't a Christian and became a Christian later in life, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about someone who is a committed Christian sitting in this room who is single and considering dating and marriage. And they say, it doesn't matter if he's a believer or not. How can you have fellowship with a non-believer? Your marriage will be out of whack. 
it will be less than symmetrical. If he is not pursuing Christ, he's going to drag you down as well. I heard one pastor say that when you marry an unbeliever, your father-in-law becomes the devil. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I think that the principle is pretty sound. Is If your father is God and his father is the father of lies, then who is your father-in-law? It would be hard to have fellowship. But this also has implications for the church. What are we here for? Why do we come to church? Is it, is it because we have really cool slides with these like weird purple backgrounds? I did that. I'm sorry. Or is it because we have good music? Because Verna knows how to bang it out on the piano? Or is it because your pastor has a sweet beard? What, what are we here for? What is our purpose as a church? Is it, maybe, is it, maybe it's to keep things the way they've always been. And I'm, I'm going to speak to some of the older saints in the congregation who I love dearly. The world is changing. And this may be the only place where things have not changed for a long time. Are you centered around fear? Or are you going to be centered around the gospel? Because ways and, and methods of sharing the gospel change. The gospel doesn't change. But sometimes we have to make some adjustments. And I'm going to talk to you young people. If you're coming here thinking that we're going to have a guy up in skinny jeans playing guitar and crooning, you're likely going to be disappointed because we're not centered here just around music. We're centered around the gospel. So what do you come to church for? What is your purpose in life? Who are you fellowshipping with? Is it for the purpose of the gospel? And that's what brings joy to your pastor's heart is when you're centered around the gospel. Now, we have lots of fun things that we do here. We have chick flicks and chocolates, and we have all sorts of fun events. But the focus needs to be the gospel. Is how can this be a vehicle for spreading the gospel, whether within ourselves and our own communities, or whether in the greater Sierra Vista area. But not only that, Paul is confident in the completion. He is thankful because he is confident in completion. Look at verse 6. This is probably the, the crown jewel of this passage to me. This is what has brought me to tears this week. So I want to read it. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you can make a more powerful statement than that in one single sentence. Now, just so you know, this is all one sentence, three through nine or three through eight, one sentence in the Greek. This is a powerful statement because we don't start things and finish them all the time, do we? I don't know how many hobbies I have in my house, the woodworking, leatherworking, um, books that I've started and didn't finish, but I like to start things and I rarely finish them. And sometimes when we start something really strong and then we kind of peter out, don't we? This is a common thing in our life. So what an incredible gift is this promise of completion. And look how it's done. It's by Christ's power. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work. Who is he referring to? God. He did this. The power comes from God, and we can't lose it. God and God alone is who started it and who is going to bring it to completion. This is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is something that um, we 
typically hold to as Baptists. I want you to think about this. How encouraging to think about starting a journey with someone who is actually going to finish that journey. Have you ever thought about that? How many of you have gotten married thinking, well, this marriage will last a couple of years and then I'll move on to a new one? That would be horrible, wouldn't it? To be thinking that as your bride begins walking down the aisle and you're like, yeah, she'll go about halfway with me. Then we'll find somebody else. Right, that's ridiculous. But we know, based on this promise, that he who starts a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, how shaky would your salvation be if it depended on your ability to save yourself? Man, I'll tell you, I make more mistakes, especially on Sunday mornings, than any other time of the week. I spill coffee on myself. I trip over my own feet. I can't rely on myself to save myself. I can't even rely on myself to, not, to make a cup of coffee and not spill it on me. Right? We have this ability to fail. God doesn't fail. Let's go ahead and look at this woman, Lydia. Now, remember we talked last week that Paul has a specific church in mind. This is a church in the book of Acts, Acts 16, and we, we see this lady, Lydia, who comes to know Christ. In Acts 16, we have this story about Paul, and he is in there on the Sabbath day. He went outside the city gate by the river where he, we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a, deal, a dealer in purple cloth in the city of Thyatira, was listening. Now listen to this. What would Paul be saying in that, that little prayer meeting? What do you think he, he would be saying? Well, it's probably what he's been saying all along. In 1631, he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so we have this lady, Lydia, she hears that. And listen to what it says that happens. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Who did that work? Was it Lydia? Or was it God? Who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart. One uh, theologian says that Philippians 1.6 is one of the three greatest verses in the Bible that teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine that no one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ will ever be lost. Now, many of you are like me and are thinking, well, what's the other two verses? Give me the other two. So let me give it to you. John 10, 27 and 28. Those are the other two verses. And then we see in 7 through 8 that Paul has a right attitude. He says this, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he makes an oath. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has them in his heart. He is thankful both for um, thankful and grace, both for their, their partnership with him, even in his imprisonment. So there's a pastor in Canada who was violating the health laws and continuing to preach to his whole congregation, and he gets arrested, and he's in prison now in Canada. What do you think could have happened? Well, his congregation could have been like, 
see ya. I don't want nothing to do with you, you felon, right? And just avoided him. Or they could have surrounded his family, loved on his family, and encouraged him. What do you think the response that he would have to his church congregation would be if they stood with him? He would be joyful. And then the defense and confirmation of the gospel are legal terms. That Paul, even in his imprisonment, the circumstances did not hinder the spreading of the gospel. And this congregation is holding him up, continuing to pray for him. So what is Paul thankful for? Well, he's thankful for a congregation who is centered on the gospel, who he knows will be carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, there's something enjoyable about finishing something, finishing a hard task, something when you work hard and do something with your hands and you create something. There's something that brings joy to that, isn't there? Now, pastors, we don't see a lot of the fruit of our labors. We spend a lot of time working on sermons, preparing lessons, and a lot of times we don't see what happens. But sometimes we do. Sometimes when I look out at our congregation, I see people who have less hardened hearts. I see people whose marriages are restored. I see people who are hungry for the gospel. And you know what that does? That brings tears to my eyes. I actually cry over you when I am praying for you in my study and at my house. I have tears because of the way that God is working in each and every one of you. But you know that you can really damage that joy as well by living a life of carnality, of earthly, of earthly pleasure. It is sad to see when someone walks away from the faith. It's hurtful. It's painful. But Paul here says this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. If you are truly saved by God, what he started, he will finish. Now, the problem is a lot of us will say, well, I know lots of people who said they were Christians and, and did the thing. They, they got baptized. They, they said that they were Christians, but then they just walked away and never looked back. The question is, were they ever truly saved? That's the real question. Not whether or not it took or not, but whether they were truly saved. I find great comfort in this passage. I want to read to you this long quote that I just think sums it up. It says, The assurance God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, right? We know that there's going to be an end, but it guarantees to every experience of every day for in all things God is putting the finishing touches, whether in good news, in bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble. It all has a purpose. There is a purpose in every trial in your life. Many of you are struggling with that today. Many of you are having difficulty with things that are unexpected. We've had a lot of unexpected events happen in our family. And it seems like every time we get a little ahead financially, something drops out on us, right? The, the pump goes out. The washing machine goes out. Um, something breaks. We have to buy something else to replace something that's gone. I don't know if you've ever had a family of six and had to do laundry but you know how important a washing machine is for that, 
and it's not fun to drag it to your mom's house to get it done. All this has a purpose. Concerning all such situations, faith affirms, without this, I would not be ready for the day of Christ. When, this, when the washing machine goes out, we could do one thing. We could grumble. Or we could do this. If it hadn't gone out, I would not be ready for the day of Christ. I want you to think about this. This is life-changing. God's trials in your life for you as a Christian is to make you ready for the day of Christ. Have you thought about that before? Have you ever considered that? You know, I've known about this intellectually. I've studied it scripturally. But until this week, it did not hit me until it became serious. That these trials, this is the immediate, practical, and strengthening benefit of, of the truth of Christian assurance. You know, so often we think about the final days, right? When we will meet Christ in glory and it's going to be a wonderful time. But we, we don't always think about the preparation to get there. When you think about the Israelites in the wilderness and they're wandering around for 40 years, that was a time of training to get them ready to enter into the promised land. I wonder what God is putting you through this week. This last week, you might have had a, a tough week. You might have had some difficult circumstances. Can you look at those unhappy providences, as I call them? Can you look at those and say, this is necessary for my growth in the faith? Can you do that? That takes a lot of faith, guys. It's not easy. I'm not pretending to have it all figured out because my tendency, of course, is to be like, why now, God? Why now? We need this washing machine. Otherwise, my kids will stink, right? We have all these thoughts. And finally, we have Paul saying a prayer. In verse 9, he says, and I pray this. You know, this is what every parent, every wife, every husband, every elder, every pastor should pray for their people, for their people, their partners, their partners in the gospel. And you should pray this. And let's, let's see what this prayer is asking, because this is a serious prayer. This pastor prays for a growing love in verses 9 through 10a. It says this, and I pray this, that your love, your agape, will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. The nature of this growing love is self sacrificing. This is the same self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. When, when we talk about this word agape, agape and, and philo often are interchanged in the New Testament, so it's hard to say that this one type of love means this one thing, and eros means this type of love, and there's different things. And, and I've heard sermons on that, but a lot of times they're interchanged. But the emphasis is that this is the love of Christ. It's a selfless action. And so what you're praying when you say, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing, you are praying that they will become more and more selfless. The women have talked about the Good Samaritan, about loving your neighbor and what that looks like. That's the kind of love that we are to have, the type of love that will sacrifice 
your, um, your reputation, that will sacrifice your time, that will sacrifice your money, or even risk you going to prison. Because maybe they would say, well, that Samaritan must have beat up that Jew because that Samaritan hates that Jew. I told, um, when I was talking to the ladies about an illustration, it's kind of like someone with a Make America Great Again hat in a ditch and a Black Lives Matter person walking by and saying, I'm going to help that person out. And if a camera came along, what do you think the news would say? Oh, that BLM protester beat up that MAGA person. Or we could switch it. What if there's a BLM t-shirt guy laying in the, in, in the ditch and a MAGA guy walks by? Well, they're going to take the news, and what's the news going to say? So loving, that self-sacrificing loving, is regardless of what people are going to say about you. I mean, I love, I love the Greek in here because it says, I pray this, that your love will keep on going. Well, the Greek says, heti malon kai malon, abounding and abounding, greater and greater. That's what it's saying here. So I pray this, that your love will keep on getting bigger and bigger, better and better, abounding and abounding. Now, some other translations take, do that well. This one just uses on growing in the knowledge of every kind of discernment. But I really love that greater and greater. It's not arrived at, but it's a process. The second thing you see is the environment of a growing love. At the end of 9, this says, I pray, or in, in 9 it says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. How is it going to grow? In knowledge and every kind of discernment. So how do we love? Well, love grows by knowledge and depth of insight. Has anyone ever told you that? That your love grows by knowledge and depth of insight? It's the environment that love grows in. This is the basic elements that foster love. How many in our culture today will say that love is a feeling? And if, if I, I can fall in and I can fall out of love, kind of like how you would fall in and out of love with a spouse. I can just leave her once I fall out of love. Is that, is that right? So what kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Here, this word for knowledge is more than just a head knowledge. Right? I could spend my whole time this week sitting in my office, reading wonderful books written by very smart people. Do you think that that knowledge will make me more loving? I could have all the Bible knowledge in the world. Would that knowledge make me more loving? So what is Paul saying here? What is he getting at? It's an experiential knowledge. Just like I told you how verse 6 became super real to me this week, that's the experience. It's when you suffer that you recognize how to love someone who suffers. It's when you experience grief that you know how to share with someone who is grieving. So Paul is telling us here that love is developed when we experience and know how to live practically and apply love that we experience in Christ. Some of you have been Christians a long time. You have sat here and soaked in the knowledge of the word, but you've never put it to action. Why is that? Is it because we think of church as a cruise liner that we can come on, we can eat our fill, we can ride along, have a good experience, and then we walk off and we, we just remember it in our picture books? 
Or is the church more like a aircraft carrier that's here to equip us to launch, to go out and to do something real? Not have nice emotions to the unbeliever. How many of us would sit on our couch and say, I just love my neighbors. I love it when their dogs bark. I love it when their kid plays the recorder in the backyard. I love them. I love them. I love them. And then you walk by and you just kind of like wave at them as you keep walking. What good is that love? It's not. It's not any good. It's worthless. Paul is saying we have to have practical love. It's not until you go and you make a friendship with someone that's unloving that you begin to understand what love is. It's not until you humble yourself, get off your high horse, and get to know someone that you would not normally talk to, that you begin to understand what love is. It's not until someone talks bad about you behind your back that you know what it means to turn the other cheek. That's what this love is, and it's discernment, it's moral discretion. This is something I think we miss as Christians, is our personal holiness affects the growth of love. If you are caught in some type of sin, maybe you're in bondage to pornography or you're in bondage to some type of hatred and bitterness, how can you love? How can you really truly love? That's the question. Because that love will start to grow cold. You'll start to get bitter. It will not grow with personal affection. So your personal holiness affects love. If you do not have moral discretion or discernment, you will not grow in love. Has anyone ever told you that? That what you know leads to more love? And then we see the result of a growing love in 10a. Paul shows us that in a growing love, is fed by this proper knowledge and moral insight enables us to see the best way to live in light of the day of Christ. It says, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. The result of growing love is a life that can see the counterfeits. How do you identify a counterfeit bill? Have you ever worked at a cashier as a cashier, and been taught how to identify a counterfeit. They show you a lot of the true bills, right? This is what a $100 bill looks like. It has these things written into it. That's how you know what's real. How do you find a fake? Well, you compare it to what's real. How do you identify a counterfeit? A counterfeit? By growing in love. It's easy to see who is actually living a life of love, and who is sitting here getting fat, listening to the word. Discerning what is best leads to character, and this is what you need to pray for in others. This is what I pray for my children, that they would grow in love, but not just love in the gushy, nice sense. You know, a lot of parents will spend time looking at the other kids that their kids play with and then be like, well, he, she might be a good spouse for my, my son, but her parents are horrible. I don't know about that one. Right? And we like identify future potential uh, uh, marriage partners for our kids. Right, That's why in some countries they do arranged marriages because they don't want to have to deal with the mom and the dad from the wrong side of the tracks. Right, Anyways, not important. So 
That's what you pray for your children, is that they would grow and love. Pastors, are you praying for your congregation like this? I can tell you that I have written this prayer out for half of this congregation, that they would grow in love. And I pray that the elders are doing the same thing when they think about the members of this congregation. I pray you as dads are praying this about your children on a regular basis. This pastor here, Paul, he prays for complete character. We see the nature of that complete character, pure and blameless. Christ's return should always occupy our thoughts. A slave to Christ is one who is swallowed up in the will of Christ. Everything you should be doing should be in preparation for the coming of Christ. Not in some weird, vague sense that at some point Christ will return and I better not get caught doing the wrong thing, but in joyful anticipation. When I was dating my wife, whenever a conversation come up, somehow her name came in there. I don't know what that was about. But every once in a while, I would mention her. Somehow, she would work her way in in every conversation. Is that what's true for you about Christ? Because that's what it should be like. So you pray for this part of, of this character. We have two rare words here. Um, essentially, they're pointing to fruit. That when you hold it up to the sun for examination, will pass muster, will be without flaw. Now, I grew up in Senegal, and I've been, people have attempted to dupe me before. Imagine that. People have tried to trick me out of money. And there was this one time we were at the marketplace, and a guy said, come back here and see what I have to offer you. And so he leads me into this really dark back room and tries to show me some stuff. You can't see that stuff in the dark. You'd never trust someone who tries to sell you a product in the dark or a dimly lit room. That's what this character needs to do. We need to examine the fruit of righteousness. And then we see the means of complete character. What are the ways that character is completed? Well, what it's talking about here is ethical, righteous activity. It's, it's kind of like a harvest that has come to completion. It's a patient progression of holiness in the inner life and the outer life. And then finally, we see the purpose of this complete character. It says, he concludes his prayer, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through, the, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Everything needs to be to the glory and praise of God. That's the purpose. You, when you live a carnal, earthly life, you are not living to the glory and praise of God. When you cheat on your spouse, you are not living to the glory and praise of God. In fact, you're spitting in Christ's face. So a parent should want the best for their children, we know this. That's why parents look at the best schools, the best sports, the best activities. How much more... Should we focus on those in our care spiritually? Should we, who have responsibility over the spiritual lives of our children, not pray this? Should we as elders and pastors and overseers, should we not pray this for our congregation? That's pretty convicting. I would ask that you maybe copy and paste this passage and then begin to pray for those who you know and watch what God will do through your intercession. So we can see this, 
passage, and we see what a mature Christian should look like, don't we? A slave of Jesus Christ has a heart that is gospel-focused. My question to you, is your heart shaped by the gospel? Is your heart shaped by the gospel? This week, I want you to commit to prayer and thanksgiving, praying for those that you are responsible for. So when I asked you, what type of medicine would you call this passage? Is it take once a day? Is it take as needed? Is it take when you get a scratch? What kind of medicine is this? Was it vitamin? I would say it's almost like dialysis. Your liver has failed and you must take this all the time. That's what this is. This is a passage that will serve you well to memorize. This is a passage that will, will, will aliven your prayer life. If you don't pray this for people, you will probably not see this in people. So let's go ahead and commit this week to having a gospel-shaped heart who takes their vitamins daily, who studies this passage and sees the joy that it would bring to your friends and your family and to your congregation. Can we do that? Anyone, anyone want to not commit in front of all these people to doing this? All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Almighty God, you have been so gracious to us. Father, what a glorious truth is verse 6 of this passage. Lord, I am, I am floored by the promise that has been embedded here. That this promise that even when I go home and something bad happens, that that is for completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That is to make me better, to, be, to become more like Christ. Lord, how refreshing is it to know that we are not alone in this, but that you walk along with us. You have tabernacled among us. Father, if there's anyone in this congregation who needs to do business with God, now is the time for them to do it. While they are here sitting and thinking about the things of you. Father, I pray that you would help them to have love that keeps on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Father, I pray that they would be able to approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that every member of this congregation, every visitor, every uh, person who attends, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, we do this all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.